Sure, uh, sure is neat to be here. I remember Abby playing the piano at our church, and I was kind of taken back there a little bit to what it used to be like. And uh, John as well, though he probably didn't get a chance to lead quite as much as he would have liked to. I had to keep him under my thumb a little bit, you know, uh, when, we, when we were there in, in New Brunswick. But well, we had some great, great times uh, together. And I look back with a, a great deal of fondness on the time when we served together in St. John, New Brunswick. I would tell you a, a quick John Banks story. Uh, I have several. If you want to hear them afterwards, I'd be happy to share them. Uh, I, had, I should have bribed John before I got here and told him if he didn't want me sharing stories, it would cost him. But uh, one of the first John Banks memories I have, they arrived in St. John, and John said to me, look, uh, we're going to go get some wood. They were burning wood at their house for uh, heat, and he said, we're going to go get some wood. And I said, well, have you got a truck or something? Because, you know, normally you need a truck to pick up wood. And so he said, well, I'm going to get a U-Haul truck. And I said, a a U-Haul truck? They don't have pickup trucks at U-Haul. You know, they've got, like, cube vans for moving. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting one of those. (laughs) Anyway, we rented a U-Haul truck. We drove to the middle of Pack-a-Lunch, New Brunswick. I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere. And uh, when we got there, we jammed that U-Haul truck full of wood. I mean, it was right from the floor to the ceiling, front to back. And uh, that... I rode behind him, and I wouldn't ride with him in the truck. It was that bad. I rode, I rode behind him in the car, and that truck was just sitting like that the whole way. Of course, it only cost him 19.95, right, for a one-day rental, a one-way move, he called it, I think. And uh, we got that wood there and unloaded, and I'll never forget that. As I've never seen a person before or since use a U-Haul truck to move their firewood, but. Uh, I was impressed when it was over. I got to say, I thought, now that's an idea. That only cost 20 bucks to get that truck. That was great. I'll never forget that. Oh, and there are more stories where that one came from, but we don't have time for all the, uh, the bank stories. A lot of great memories of time in ministry together. In fact, we are doing a number of things still at uh, our church in St. John that were, were ideas that John brought to us. I, I so appreciated his creativity, his... Uh, ideas that he brought uh, to ministry, how we could do ministry better, and a number of those things are still uh, still being done in our church uh, to this day. We still do six at six. Uh, that was something that John started when uh, when he came. We still do that to this very day. So grateful for him and his input and influence in my life, and I trust that in some small way that God has used me in his life as well. So to God be the glory for that. You can see a photo of my family there. That's just uh, in case you missed Sunday school uh, to let you know uh, that is me and my wife standing next to each other. If you go, I'm trying to look at, how are you looking at the picture? If you go to the left, um, yes, you'll see my second son, Jared, is standing next to me. And he's 14 in the 10th grade. Uh, Megan is next to him. Megan is 13 now. She's in grade 8. And going the other way, standing next to my wife is our oldest son, Caleb. Caleb is 17, a senior in high school. And uh, standing next to him is my youngest son, Noah, who is 11 years old and in the 6th grade. So that's my family. I do wish they could be with me, but it's just not possible when we're on these long road trips. I'm away for a couple of weeks doing meetings. Just not possible to bring them all with us, but uh, it's, it's to your disadvantage not to know them. Uh, really, it is. And so maybe someday 
if God would lead our paths together in ministry, we'll be able to come back here again, and I'll introduce them all to you, and uh, you can have the pleasurable experience of meeting each of them. But that is my family. Pray for us, please, as we go to South Africa. Let me remind you, I'll probably say it one more time before we finish uh, this afternoon, but there are prayer cards in the foyer on my ministry table. Um, you're out there picking up cards anyway on this side, so just go over to the other side and pick up one of those prayer cards, please. Feel free to take one, two, if you can use them. This is a visual reminder to you of who we are and our time here. Um, you see what I'm going to speak today, and I'm going to leave, and in two months' time, you're going to think, there was some guy here from New Brunswick. I don't remember who he was. I don't, you know, who was that guy anyway? It'll be a distant memory, hopefully a pleasant one for you, but it'll be a distant memory. And if you have one of these cards, you'll be reminded much better of who we are and remember to pray for us. So if you'd pick up one of those cards, that would be so, so much appreciated. At the top of the card is our website, Hunters, the number two, SouthAfrica.com. And that website has all the information uh, you could possibly want to know about us and our ministry in South Africa. So pick up one of these cards. It has the connection to the website on it. And then if you're really interested, uh, we'd love for you to sign up. I noticed several signed up before the service. Does my heart good to see that? Uh, uh, Usually, how many people sign up for our prayer letter is a good indication of the relationship we're going to have with the church moving forward. And so if you sign up, we'll drop a letter right into your inbox. Look, I'm not going to fill your inbox with junk. I won't sell your email, I promise, to AT&T or whoever might send stuff to you. Um, I'll just, every couple of months, there'll be a, a little letter from us about what God has been doing in our lives. A great way for us to stay in touch. We email almost a thousand prayer letters now to folks. So sign up for that. If you don't have email, that's fine. If you prefer a paper copy, we'd love to email you. We mail over a hundred prayer letters out and uh, we don't mind doing that. We're happy to do it if it's a way to connect with you. So please take advantage of those opportunities to sign up after the service. And I'd like to talk to as many, as many of you as possible. I know it's hard to talk to everybody. We can only have a brief conversation if that's the case. But as many of you as possible, I'd love to visit after the service, have felt very much welcomed here this morning and appreciate that greatly. Let's turn to Colossians then. Chapter 1, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. Pastor Banks read this passage already this morning and I want to make sure we honor the text of Scripture today in our time together. So Colossians chapter 1. Hey, guys in the sound booth, did I turn my microphone on? Am I on? Is that okay? Good. Thank you. I wasn't sure if I remember to do that or not. So let's begin by saying this. To find a city that the Apostle Paul had never been to would, I suspect, kind of be like trying to find someone Donald Trump has never offended. All right? I mean, it's just, that's kind of a hard thing. You know? I mean, Paul has been everywhere. And finding a church that Paul had never been to might be even more challenging than finding a city Paul had never been to. But Colossi, Colossi the city of Colossae, was such a place. In Colossians chapter 2, and in verse 1, we read this. I want you to know, Paul says, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul's never been to the city of Colossae and never been to the church that meets at Colossae. Now I've asked myself many times, why is this? I mean, Paul, it's not like Paul didn't get out. 
It's like Paul was housebound. Paul was a world traveler. How is it that he never made it to the city of Colossae and never visited the church in Colossae? That seems like a curiosity, doesn't it? And so as I thought about why it is that Paul had never been to the city of Colossae, I believe I've settled on the reason he's never been there. And really, it's related to Paul's missionary strategy. See, Paul has a particular strategy, how he's going to reach the world. And he has a plan for how he's going to do that. And here's what he does. Paul goes to major urban centers. Paul goes to the city. So I I hate to disappoint you here today. I like Honesdale. Uh, Pastor John and I had a lunch downtown at a diner yesterday. Looked out the window, learned about the gravity railways in this part of the world. I thought, man, this is nice. I like this. The fall leaves are out. It's a very pretty part of Pennsylvania, but listen to me. If the Apostle Paul came to Pennsylvania... He wouldn't come to Honesdale. Where would he go? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. That's where he'd go. And he would set up a central command post in those cities, and from those cities he would spread the gospel as people as he met and interacted with people. And that is exactly how the church of Colossae gets established. You see, Paul went to Ephesus. Ephesus was the major urban center in Asia Minor. 300,000 people in Ephesus, we think, which is a humongous city in Paul's day. Paul goes there. Paul stays the longest in Ephesus that he stays anywhere he ever goes. He tells us this in the book of Acts, that he stayed in Ephesus for three years. That's like an eternity for Paul, who never stayed anywhere more than a few weeks. But he stayed in Ephesus for three years, and while he was in Ephesus, he spread the gospel to those people who had come to Ephesus. Now, sooner or later, everybody has to go to the city, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to catch a flight around the world from Honesdale, isn't it? So if you're going to catch a flight, you think, well, I'm going to have to drive to Philadelphia and catch a flight. out of, Or maybe I'll go over to Scranton or someplace like that to catch a flight. But sooner or later, you've got to go to the city. Oh, you need some government documents done. You need something. Uh, it's down to the city. You might want to go to Pat's to get a Philly cheesesteak. You know, I've done that. I crossed that right off my bucket list. In fact, I think I've been there twice for a Philly, the home of the Philly cheesesteak. See, now you all want to go to Philadelphia, don't you? The home of the Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich. It's amazing. I'll, I'll just wipe the drool off here and get back to, get back to preaching. I mean, it, sooner or later, everybody goes to the city. And Paul knows that. And so he meets people in the city and then dispatches those people back to the place they came from with the good news of the gospel. So Paul's in the city of Ephesus, and he meets a man named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras, I believe, was converted in Ephesus. Do I know that for certain? I don't know that for certain. But I do believe that Paul met Epaphras in the city of Ephesus, led him to Christ, and then dispatched him to go back to the city of Colossae, where he was from. Look, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12, we meet this man Epaphras. And look at what Paul says about him in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you? Paul identifies Epaphras as a Colossian. And then he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 7, he says this regarding Epaphras, just as you learned it, that is, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So you see, Epaphras was the pastor of the church of Colossae. He was from Colossae, but he met Paul in Ephesus, came to Christ. Paul said, now look, Epaphras, here's what you got to do. You've got to go back to the city of Colossae, take the gospel, win people to Christ, and establish a local church there. That's exactly what Epaphras did. 
And now as Paul writes the book of Colossians, he is telling them, because Epaphras is with him, he's telling the Colossian church, look, I, how I have enjoyed fellowshipping with Epaphras, your pastor, your fellow, our fellow servant who ministers the gospel of grace to you. It's a wonderful story, but it explains to us why it is that Paul has never been to Colossae. He didn't go to Colossae because he was in the city. He won Epaphras to Christ in the city, dispatched him to go back to Colossae to plant a church, and so Paul's never been there. And so, because Paul has never been there, he wants the church at Colossae to get to know him a bit. You know what it's like when you meet somebody for the first time, or meet somebody you've never seen before. I was doing it today. So we're standing out in the foyer, and usually you say something like, well, where are you from? And I say, I'm from New Brunswick. And people say, oh, where is that? And I say, well, you know, it's obvious. If you go to the state of Maine and go out to the coast and follow the coast up, eventually you hit New Brunswick. You know, Pastor Banks is from there. And then people go, oh, yeah, right. You're from the same place he's from. Oh, okay. They made more than one of the, the you people up there. Like, there's, there's people up there in that part of the world. I say, yeah, 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 you know, and so with you, Jenny. And I say, well, where are you from? Well, I used, used to live here, used to live there, but now we're in Honesdale and we're doing this and that. Oh, okay, well, what do you do for a living? Well, you know, I'm a welder, I'm a carpenter. Oh, okay, and we get acquainted, right? Somebody was out there, one of the young kids was out in the foyer telling me about his coin collection. And we're we getting to know each other. We don't know each other, so we have to get connected. And this is what Paul is doing at the beginning of the book of Colossians. He's introducing himself. He's telling people, look, here's what makes me tick. He said, I, here's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what Paul's doing. He said, here's my purpose. Here's, here's who I am as an apostle, as a preacher, as a missionary. Here's, here's who I am. I want you to get to know me. And that's what Pastor John read this morning. It, it's basically Paul's statement about who he is and what makes him tick. Let's be reminded of it. In verse 23, Paul says of Colossians 1, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See? He said, I'm a minister of the gospel. So we're starting to get this sense. Okay, it must be something about the gospel that makes Paul tick. And in verse 24, he says, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. So we, we know Paul is all about the gospel. We know Paul is all about the church. According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Oh, so Paul is all about the word. He's anxious to expose the word of God to people so they learn it and know it and understand what it says. Then he says in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Paul says here, I'm all about Jesus. I just, I, I go, I tell people about Jesus. I proclaim him, warning everyone. The gospel includes a warning, doesn't it? You want to avoid going to hell as a warning, admonishing everyone with a teaching, with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Paul says, you want to know what I do? Here's what I do for a living. I tell people about Jesus. I introduce people to the gospel. I build up Christ's church. I exalt Christ wherever I go. 
That's what is his purpose. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's how I get it done, because Christ works in me. I said, this is basically a summary statement of Paul and what makes Paul tick. I love it. It's great. It needs to be what makes me tick. It needs to be what makes you tick. Now, there is a strange verse. In all of the talking that Paul does, he's introducing himself and letting us know what his purpose is and why he does the things he does. There is something that Paul says here that's very arresting. In fact, I might even say it's alarming when you first read it. It's found in verse 24. And I don't know if you caught it when I was reading. See, I don't know how you do Bible study. Here's how I do. But I think this is what a lot of people do. Now, maybe it's not you, but this is what I think a lot of people do. They open their Bibles because Pastor John told them they've got to read their Bibles. So they open their Bibles and say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible. It's okay, I'll, pass. I'll do it, I'll do it. So they open their Bible and start reading. You know, John 3.16, okay, I got that. 3.17, 3.18, 3.20, I don't understand that. They skip over it. They go, oh, I don't understand. Okay, uh, John 5. Oh, I found something I understand, so I'm going to... They skip over all the places they don't understand. They pray for a nugget, you know, let's just give me a nugget, Lord. Give me a daily crumb so I can go along my way here. And they, they read and read and they just skip over all the hard parts. But I think that's a bad way to read your Bible. I think when you get to a hard part, something you don't understand, you know what you should do? Stop. Stop the reading. Why don't I understand what this means? God's Word is meant to be understood. Right? So when I get to something I don't understand, it drives me wild. I can't stand it. Why don't I understand what that means? That means something. God wants me to know what it means. i got to figure out what it means. So I go to work. So I was reading, and I got to verse 24, and this is what I read. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Do you understand what that means? (laughs) It's like... Well, Paul seems to be suffering, but I don't know what he means that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So I read that, and I thought, well, now, this is a problem, because I have been told my entire life, I grew up in church. I kid you not. Some kids wet the bed, I wet the pew, all right, because I fell asleep on the pew, and I left more than one mark on the pew in the church I grew up in. And I was raised in church. I, when I was literally days old, I was in church. My parents believed if their doors were open at the church, the hunters were going to be there. And we went. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth group. I mean, if the doors were open, we were there. It was just and like, I didn't grow up saying, I don't want to go. I just grew up thinking, that's what everybody does. Until I went to school and somebody said, you go to church seven times a week? Yeah, don't you? No. Really? Huh? I mean, it never even dawned on me to say I didn't want to go to church. We just, we just did that. That's what we did as a family. You know, you went to church, Sunday school, Sunday morning. You came home Sunday afternoon, you got a spanking. You went to church Sunday night. That's just how you did it, right? <laughs> I admit that happened more than once because uh, you, know, you did something bad at church, right? I mean, that was just kind of the way. That was life for me. I grew up in church, and I have been told my entire life, I've been told, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is completely sufficient to save you from your sin. I've been told, my whole life I've been told that. And so I'm reading in the Bible, and what it appears to say in verse 24 is that there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. Doesn't it seem to say that? And Paul says that in his flesh he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that cannot be right. 
It cannot be right. I was told, I was taught from the Bible that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. And here Paul says to be saying that somehow he's filling up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. How can that be? So I decided that what must be the problem is the translation. The people who translate the Bible, they just didn't know Greek well enough. So I get out my Greek book. It's the book in my library I paid the most money for. You have the Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich lexicon. Of, I don't know how much you paid for it, but I paid 125 U.S. dollars for this book. Okay, U.S. dollars, you'll notice, I said, because in Canada, that's a lot more money. So 125 U.S. it's pink. It's a pink book. All right? Who makes a pink book for a pastor? But I took it off my shelf, and I laid it out on my desk, and I said, okay, I'm going to find out what this verse really means. Got out my Greek New Testament, got out my lexicon. I started reading. And what I discovered was that when Paul says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that phrase, filling up what is lacking, is actually translated from two Greek words. The first Greek word is a verb, which means to fill up or to supplement. And the second word is a noun, which means need, deficiency, or want. I just realized that was no help. Because it means exactly what it says. It's accurately translated. I didn't even have to buy a $125 book to find that out. It's there. It just means what it's accurately translated. It really means to fill up, to supplement whatever is lacking, what is behind, what is short, what is deficient. So Paul is saying that his suffering in some way completes or fills up or supplements the sufferings of Christ. But how can that be? How can that be? To make matters worse, I was listening to the radio when I was in the state of Maine. I was there on deputation meetings, and I was on my way, I think, to McDonald's. And, of course, you can't tell I ever eat McDonald's. But I was listening to the radio, and I I found something called the Presence Radio Network. We don't have such a thing in Canada, but in the state of Maine, there is a Catholic radio network, and I was listening to a man on the Catholic radio network give a testimony of converting from his Protestant faith to the Catholic faith. Now, this was most unusual for me, you understand. Being raised a Baptist, being raised in evangelical Bible-preaching churches, I'm used to testimonies going the other way. You know, people who were in Catholicism being converted and coming to a Protestant church. But this guy was saying the opposite. And he said in his testimony that one of the verses that God used to convert him from grace to works, essentially, was this verse. He said, you see, my suffering mingles with the sufferings of Christ and together What I suffer and what Christ suffers accomplishes my redemption. You had to see me driving my car down the road. And the guy says this. I'm like, that's not true. Somebody stop him. I'm I'm going all over the road, turning the knob. Is this a call-in show? Where's my phone? I got to call in. I couldn't believe he said it. To say that your suffering mingles with the sufferings of Christ to produce your eternal salvation is a sin against the gospel. 
We can't say something like that. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 cannot be saying that your suffering and Christ's sufferings work together to accomplish your salvation. Look at the way Paul summarizes the gospel in verses 20 to 22 of this very chapter. Look at what he says in verse 20. And through him, that is, through Christ, to reconcile to himself, that is, to God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he, that is God, has now reconciled in his, that is Christ's body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Do you see? Where in that summary of the gospel would you ever get the impression that your suffering somehow accomplishes your eternal salvation? It's just not there. Paul would never say such a thing. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Christ is the author and finisher of your faith. Hebrews 53 and verse 5 says that he was wounded for your transgressions. He was, not you, he was wounded for your transgressions. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ did it. Hebrews 7.27 says he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12 says neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9.26 says, But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen, friend. Only the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to save. Only him. Suffer all you want. Your suffering will never accomplish, not even a little bit, eternal redemption. That was purchased and won and paid for by Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, if that is the case, and I believe it is the case, then what on earth is Paul talking about? I'm glad you asked. I have an answer. I believe the key to understanding what Paul means in this passage is to turn to another passage where similar language is used. Look in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, as you're turning there, let me set the scene for you. The church at Philippi has collected a financial gift for the Apostle Paul. And they need to deliver the gift to Paul. You know, it's not like it is nowadays in Paul's day. Nowadays, hey, you want to send somebody a check, you just take a picture of it, click, Boom, it's deposited in your bank account. That's pretty handy. I had somebody the other day, I was at a church, somebody said, hey, I want to give you a gift. They said, check your email. I checked my email, there was an e-transfer. I answered the security question and the money was in my account. It took literally seconds to do it. It was cool. I was like, hey, sign me up for more of this. Right? So it was, it's not like that in Paul's day. No e-transfers, no international wiring money, no, none of that. None of that. Somebody's got to physically take the bag of money and give it to Paul. That's the only way he's going to get it. Now, as a church, Philippi is trying to figure out how can we do this. Well, you know what it would be like. Imagine for a minute that the Tabernacle Bible Church decided to send a gift to one of their missionaries. And so you pass the plate, you take up a big offering, and it's Paul's day, and you've got to deliver this money to your missionary. How are you going to do it? 
Well, Pastor Banks gets up and he says, hey, look, friends, we, we've collected this money. You've been very generous. Excellent work, church. Now, let's all go to Africa to deliver the gift to the missionary. Now, you can imagine what would happen. Some people would be like, did he say go to Africa? Oh, I knew it. He's lost it. I mean, I'm not, I, I can't go to Africa. I got a job. We can't just take time off to go to Africa to deliver money. So Pastor Manx says, well, who, who, who has a job and can't make it? And half the congregation raised their hands and said, well, I can't go to Africa. Oh, okay, well, then the rest of us will go. And then somebody says, are you kidding me? I'm 95 years old. I'm not going to Africa. I wouldn't last on an airplane one hour, much less the 22 that it takes to get to Africa. I'm not going. So another bunch of people say, well, hey, Pastor Banks, we're out. We're out. Now, there's a bunch of kids here. The kids are all like, oh, yeah, score. We're going to Africa. And then their parents say, oh, no, you're not. You're going to school, buddy. Oh, man, I want to go to Africa. So oh, you finally get all the way down to one person. One person says, look, I'm available. I'll go. I'll take the money to Africa to the missionary. That's exactly what happens in the book of Philippians. Epaphroditus. Not to be confused with Epaphras. Epaphroditus from the church in Philippi, is given the money that the church raised for Paul, and he is dispatched to take it to where Paul is. Now he gets sick on the way there. Sometimes that happens when you're traveling. And he gets sick. And Paul knows that the congregation of Philippi is worried because they've heard Epaphroditus, how sick he is. Look in verse 25 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and look, your messenger and minister to my need. You see? Paul identifies Epaphroditus as a messenger and the minister to his need because he brought the money from the congregation. Now in verse 26 he says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. You know what I love? This is what I love. I love that Paul calls delivering a financial gift from a church to a missionary the work of Christ. Don't ever think, just don't ever think, oh man... I just put $5 in the plate for the missionary. It's just not enough. It's not much. Look, Paul said that giving to missions is the work of Christ. That's what he calls it here. So don't make any mistake about how significant your giving is. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life now, pay close attention, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That phrase is grammatically linked to the phrase in Colossians 1.24. They match. They're not exactly synonymous, but they're grammatically linked. So you say, yeah, but I still don't get what Paul's trying to say. Well, think about this. Epaphroditus supplied what was lacking. He filled up what was lacking in the ministry of the Philippians to Paul. In other words, Paul would have loved for everybody to have come to see him from the Philippian church. But since everybody couldn't come... Paul says, I'm glad to receive the gift from Epaphroditus because his presence was as if you had all come. He supplied what was lacking. Do you understand? Commentator Marvin Vincent says it this way. The gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking and what Paul would have enjoyed receiving 
would be the presentation of the offering in person by all the people in the church. But this is impossible. And so Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. Now, don't lose me. <laughs> That's maybe wishful thinking at this point in the sermon. Don't lose me. You say, I'm coming to the point, and I'm coming to the end. Can I get an amen for that? I mean, we'll come to the end. You just get the, I want you to clearly understand what I'm saying. Paul says, Epaphroditus supplied what was lacking by bringing the gift that was provided to me in person. It was, it was as if you all had come. Now, here's what Paul is saying in Colossians 1.24. It's related. Christ, God, I should say, has given a gift to the world. It's Christ. It, doesn't that what Romans 6.23 says? The wages of sin of death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God has given a gift to the world. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's his cross work. It's eternal life through him. God has given that gift to the world. And what is lacking, what Paul was filling up, was the presentation of that gift to every person on planet earth. Do you see? It's got nothing to do with the substance of the sacrifice. It has everything to do with the presentation of the gift. And so what... Paul is saying is that his suffering in prison was resulting in the spread of the gospel. And in that way, he was filling up what was lacking. Because everybody in the world does not know about Jesus. Everybody in the world has not heard. Everybody in the world doesn't know. And so people have to go tell them. And Paul's suffering in prison was actually accomplishing that end. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, my imprisonment is actually accomplishing the spread of the gospel. So Paul says, I am willing to suffer to fill up what's lacking. What's lacking has nothing to do with the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. It has everything to do with the presentation of the good news of Jesus to every person on planet earth. That's what Paul's saying. And so now it becomes our task. We must fill up what's lacking. Because what was lacking in Paul's day is still lacking in ours. Everybody doesn't know. Everybody hasn't heard. And so we must go and tell. And sometimes this includes immense suffering on the part of those who are going. John and Mary Payton sailed together to the New Hebrides Islands, known as Vanuatu nowadays. Payton and his wife arrived there in November of 1858. They were warned not to go. People told them, look, if you go, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Several missionary attempts had ended in disaster when no sooner had the missionaries set foot on the beach than within hours they were killed and eaten by cannibals. In fact, the story is told of a church in which John Payton presented his ministry and some dear old lady in the church raised her hand and said, John, don't go. You'll be eaten by cannibals. And John Payton said, my dear lady, not many years from now you will die. 
your body will be placed in the ground and you'll be eaten by worms. If I must be eaten by cannibals to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, then so be it. And he went. And you know what? John Payton landed in November of 1858 in the New Hebrides. By March of 1859, his wife and newborn son were dead. Succumbed to the fever that they caught while there. They were buried in the soil of the New Hebrides Islands. And John, not to minimize his suffering, for days John lay prostrate on his wife's grave, crying out to God in the deep suffering that he experienced. But as the natives of that island watched John Payton suffer, they learned something so that when John began to speak of them, of the sufferings of Christ, they knew. Ah, yes, we know what it means to suffer. We understand the sufferings of Christ. And many, thousands in fact, were brought to faith through the witness of John Payton in that place. Look, my wife and I are going to South Africa, and we don't expect to suffer a great deal. South Africa's nice. I've been making much of the fact that I don't have to shovel snow in South Africa. It's nice. It's a beautiful place. Spectacular. Look, nice roads. What would a road be like if it never had a frost heave in it? What would a road be like if it never had a snow plow go over it? Trust me, it's nice. It's real nice. Do you want to come now? Am I, am I, how's this going? It, it's, it's a very nice place. And I don't have to suffer to go there, I don't think. But let me just say something. If I have to suffer, who cares? If God calls upon you to suffer, to make Christ known, who really cares? Now, it's interesting that we can sit in our nice air-conditioned buildings in the comfort of our pews and our churches and talk about how we're willing to suffer for Christ. I get it. I've had to suffer very, very little for the sake of Christ. But maybe if we steel ourselves now to the possibility of suffering, that when it actually comes, and it will come, sooner than many of us think, we'll be ready and we'll be willing to suffer. What are you willing to endure to make Christ known? We talk of suffering, yet many of us are not willing to speak the gospel to our neighbor. We talk of suffering, yet many of us have family members with whom we've never shared the gospel. But Paul says, look, I'm willing to suffer in prison if it means that I can fill up what's lacking. And what is lacking is that everyone must know. That's why I go to South Africa, to make Christ known. It's why God has placed you here where in whatever community you live. The job is to make Christ known, to fill up what's lacking. So let's be busy about what God has left us here to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such an attentive audience. And I pray for the ministry of Tabernacle Bible Church, Lord, that this church would be a lighthouse to this community and to the surrounding communities, that we would make Christ known, that we would share the glorious gospel. Because, Lord, as hard as it is to believe in rural Pennsylvania, not everybody knows. Not everybody believes. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen this church, strengthen its resolve to be willing to share the gospel with those. And, Lord, extend its reach through missionaries around the world that they too might fill up what's lacking and announce the work of Christ because of this church. I pray to this end, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.